Silk Column, thank you for speaking with me on what is a very topical subject and something that is very much to the fore of everyone's minds these days, and that's the topic of vaccinations. So the rollout of vaccines and the fight against COVID-19 comes as a huge relief for many, but for some it presents a cause for concern. As with any vaccination, such treatment is not mandatory in Ireland, and this has led to quite a fervent debate as to whether our vaccine policy ought to be revised in the interests of public health. So, Colm, you've explored this from a very specific angle, and that is from a constitutional um, perspective. So can you tell me, how does the constitution relate to vaccinations? Does a person have a constitutional right to refuse a vaccine? So that's a, a really interesting question. So it's well established in Irish case law and ethical standards that valid consent must be obtained for medical treatment, service or investigation. So this would include things like vaccinations. And really, this is the starting point for nearly all medical treatment. Consent can be described with a couple of exceptions, which I think we're going to talk about in a minute, as an indispensable precursor to medical treatment. So a clinician simply cannot treat or examine a patient without their consent in general. So if a clinician were to do that, were they to treat the patient, were they to operate on them, were they to provide some treatment um, upon that person without their valid consent, in a situation where consent could and should have been contained, that doctor is then committing an unlawful act. And the way the law works in Ireland is that it starts from the fundamental premise that almost all touching of another person is unlawful and consent is required then to make that touching lawful. So the issue in relation to mandatory vaccination is that it would impact a number of key personal constitutional rights. So the key in relation to the implementation of any mandatory vaccinations scheme uh, when it comes to consent is voluntariness. So in order to have valid consent in Ireland, you must show three things. First, you must show that it's voluntary, so that you're voluntarily consenting. So, you know, there's not some undue influence or something like that. The second thing that you have to show is that you have sufficient information. So there's a requirement to provide enough information for the person to be able to make that decision. Then the third thing that you have to show, um, the third thing that you have to show then is capacity. So does the person have the capacity to make the decision? So the key when it comes to vaccination is voluntariness. So a corollary of the entitlement to voluntarily consent to treatment is the right to refuse treatment. So in Ireland, the right to refuse treatment is a fundamental constitutional right. And this right flows from what's known as the unenumerated personal rights of the citizen. And these are things like bodily integrity, um, the right to self-determination, the right to autonomy. And these are found in Article 40.3 of the Constitution. So it's interesting because when you actually look at the, the, the Constitution, it's not actually written in the Constitution that you have the right these rights. Instead, they've been read by judges into the Constitution, flowing from what Article 40.3 says. So generally, the personal rights protected by this article um, include the right to bodily integrity, the right to privacy, the right to autonomy, the right to health, dignity, life, and the right to the person. So these are the key rights that are impacted in relation to um, any mandatory vaccination scheme. Similarly, um, another right that would be um, that, that, that would be influenced is the protection of the family unit. So the rights of parents to make healthcare decisions on behalf of their children. Um, and there's also a question in relation to the, the, the right to religious freedom. So that may be engaged as well. So all of these rights are directly relevant to any re uh, legislation that would be brought in or any scheme that's brought in requiring mandatory vaccination. The right to bodily integrity is one of the most particularly important considerations when it comes to the question of mandatory vaccination. So 
The right to bodily integrity comes from a case called Ryan and the Attorney General, and this is a case from 1965. And in that case, um, the plaintiff, so the person who brought the case, claimed that legislation providing for the compulsory fluoridation of public water violated, violated their constitutional rights and also the rights of her children and her family. So the plaintiff argued that compulsory fluoridation was dangerous to her health and consequently violated her right to bodily integrity. So that case was heard by Mr. Justice Kenny in the High Court. And what he found was that the plaintiff had failed to demonstrate that the fluoridation of the water was actually dangerous to health. Uh, and in fact, what the court found was, based on the medical evidence, that it was beneficial in the reduction of um, dental disease. So um, this case, Ms. Ryan ultimately appealed this to the Supreme Court. And Chief Justice O'Dolloch, what he said was, the state has a duty um, to protect the citizens from dangers to health in a manner not incompatible, inconsistent with the rights of those citizens as human persons. So the courts have first recognised that there are rights, such as the right to bodily integrity. But what the court has also done in, in a similar case, although not to the same level, um, is they've recognised that, that it can be constitutionally permissible to make decisions, public health measures, even in circumstances where it might infringe um, an individual's rights. So one of the other key rights, uh, and it's a right that you mentioned in your question, relates to the right to refuse treatment. And the question is, does a person have a right to refuse treatment, even if it might save life or it might be of benefit to, the answer, might be of benefit to them? The short answer to this question is yes. In Ireland, we do have a right to refuse treatment. So a corollary of the entitlement to voluntary consent to treatment is the right for a person to elect to refuse treatment. And this really flows from the nature of consent and kind of the legal and philosophical idea of autonomy. The whole reason we have this concept that allows us to refuse treatment is it allows us to express our autonomy as people. So while definitions of what actually constitute, constitutes autonomy vary, the best known expression of the legal requirement for autonomy uh, comes from a case that I like to refer to called Schlondorf and the Society of New York Hospital from 1914. And that's a decision of Mr. Justice Cardozo, who's written many judgments in relation to the concept of autonomy. And what he said was, every human being of adult years and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done with his or, own, with his or her own body. And a surgeon who performs an operation without the patient's consent commits an assault. So consent is the right that specifically protects autonomy in medical decision-making. Flowing from these principles um, is, is the idea that a patient of sound mind and adult years capable of giving consent to a given treatment is similarly free to refuse to give their consent to that treatment. So you have that right even if the consequences of the refusal will be worse for the patient or even if it means that they might die. So in essence, a patient has a right to be wrong. It does not matter if it's a foolish idea. It does not matter if they'll ultimately result in death. They are all irrelevant. So in Ireland, there are a number of sources that give right to this right, right to refuse treatment. So the first is, like I said, from the Constitution. So in Ireland, the right to refuse treatment is a fundamental constitutional right. And it flows from the unenumerated personal rights of the citizen to bodily integrity and self-determination found in Article 40.3. So the Supreme Court, in a case called In Reaward of Court from 1995, um, so this was a case where the Supreme Court had to determine or had to consider whether a feeding tube could be removed from a person who was in a near persistent vegetative state. Um, and the Supreme Court recognised the constitutional position of the right to refuse treatment. 
And Miss Justice Denham, um, as she then was, um, it was before she became the Chief Justice, she said medical treatment may not be given to an adult person of full capacity without their consent. She then went on to say that there are a few rare exceptions to this. Uh, and one of the exceptions that she said was in regard to contagious diseases or in the case of a medical emergency where, where the patient is unable to communicate. Um, so what the judge said was this right arises, the right to refuse treatment arises out of a civil criminal and constitutional law. So if medical treatment is given without consent, it can be considered to be trespass against the person in civil law. It could be considered a battery or an assault in criminal law. And it can also be a breach of the individual's constitutional rights. And it's consent which is given by the person that actually makes this lawful. However, one of the really interesting things um, about this is that she noted that um, in the case of contagious diseases, this right might be limited. Um, it's also interesting to note that the court has recognised this right to, to refuse medical treatment on a number of occasions. So other cases would include cases like Fitzpatrick and FK number two, which was a case involving a Jehovah's Witness and whether she could refuse a blood transfusion in the case. So aside from the constitutional protection, the right to refuse treatment has long been recognised as a common law right. Um, so it, it, it's a right that's been recognised across the common law world. So in England and Wales, Australia, America, Canada, all these countries have also recognised it. It's also a right, uh, the right to refuse treatment um, will also be recognised in statute in Ireland under the Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act 2015. So this is a piece of legislation that's been brought in, but it hasn't been commenced yet. So it's not in force as of yet, but it will put the right on a statutory footing once that, that, that has been commenced. So it's quite clear that we do have this important right. But when it comes to... Um, when it comes to vaccines, there has to be a question is whether there's any circumstances, whether uh, a person can, whether that right can be overridden. So, like I said, it's clear from the case law in general, an adult patient of full capacity is entitled to refuse treatment for any reason, uh, even if that decision is irrational. However, some exceptions to this principle have emerged over the years. Um, so the first and most obvious example um, is where a person doesn't have capacity. So if the person isn't capable of making the decision, so for whatever reason, so they don't have capacity, um, then a decision will be made in their best interests. So in order to assess capacity, you ask whether the patient has comprehended the treatment information, whether they believed the treatment information uh, and the likely outcome of what will happen if they refuse that treatment, and whether they've weighed the treatment information. Um, in particular, uh, whether they've looked at the alternative choices, the likely outcomes, and whether they've been able to balance those in order to come to a decision. If a person doesn't have capacity, a decision will be made in their best interests. Um, and that would take into account things, for example, if they've perhaps expressed a previous opinion when they did have capacity. So, for example, if they said, I never want this particular treatment when they did have capacity, that would be a factor that's taken into account when assessing what their best interest is. But Another key exception, which is of particular note for our conversation today in relation to mandatory vaccines, um, is in relation to the treatment of infectious diseases. So in the re-award of course case, uh, Miss Justice Denham noted that the treatment of contagious diseases is one exception in which um, the right to, to refuse treatment might be overridden. Um, Similarly, in that case, Chief Justice Hamilton uh, agreed with some extrajudicial comments that had been made by the president of the High Court. So President Costello had been giving a lecture and he said claims of the common good might well justify restrictions on the exercise of a constitutionally protected right to refuse medical treatment in the case of contagious diseases. So the courts have recognised that in circumstances 
of infectious disease, this might be circumstances where um, where where the right to refuse treatment might be overridden. Now, thankfully, in some ways, we haven't really had a consideration. The court hasn't consider, had to have that much consideration in relation to infectious diseases and what that means. Um, other than very few statements which have said that it is at least in theory constitutionally permissible to to override the right to refuse treatment in those circumstances. So on the um, topic of consent um, and I suppose on the capacity to consent, um, where children are concerned, um, they, I suppose, are, are regarded as not maybe having the capacity to, to consent given their age. So it's up to the parents to take that responsibility for them. And the rights of the family and the rights of the parents hold a very special place in our constitution. But might it be possible to override the rights of parents who refuse to vaccinate their child? Yes. Uh, 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 the answer, the, the, the short answer is it might be possible. So there's two categories of children um, or, well, perhaps children might not be the right word, of minors um, that need to be dealt with in relation to this. So there's those who are over the age of 16, but under the age of 18, and those below the age of 16. So I might start with a brief analysis of those below the age of 16. So in those circumstances, I think it's quite useful to kind of look at what the courts have said in relation to this. And as a starting point, generally, uh, there's a right of parents to either consent or withhold consent to treatment for their children. And ultimately, in the case of those under 16, it's the parents' right to choose uh, to consent or not. And this right will, in general, be respected so long as the treatment decision being taken by the parents is not one that poses a real and immediate threat to the health or welfare of the child. So there was a case called Northwestern Health Board and HW, um, where the court basically said that it's only in exceptional circumstances where the state or the courts will intervene to vindicate a child's constitutional rights. Um, and that intervention can only be triggered in circumstances where the patient, where the parents have failed for physical or moral reasons in their duty to the child. So in that case, the, the, the question that, um, that the court had to answer was whether the, the child's parents to refuse to consent to undergo a PQ, PKU test, which is a test where um, it's known as the heel prick test where uh, some drops of blood were taken from the heel to test for a particular illness. So in that case, the parents refused to consent for that for that test to go ahead. Um, and basically what happened was the Supreme Court upheld that refusal, despite recognising that the test, if carried out, would be in the best interests of the child in those circumstances. What the court did do, however, was that they did note that there may be other cases in the future where the balancing of the rights will be favoured, will be more in favour of intervening. So again, Miss Justice Denham gave the lead judgment in that case. And what she said was, in seeking the balance to be achieved between the child's rights um, within the family and the rights of the family as an institution, as well as the parent's right uh, to exercise their responsibility for the child, the threshold will depend on the circumstances of the case, really. So if the child's life is in immediate danger, for example, if they need an operation imminently, uh, then there's a heavy weight to be put on the child's personal rights. Uh, and it's likely in those circumstances they'll supersede the family and parental considerations. So it follows, for, it follows from that decision that there's a limited scope within which parents are free to make unwise decisions or at any rate decisions that might not necessarily adhere to the best medical advice in the circumstances. However, it is clear from subsequent case law that the courts will intervene in appropriate circumstances. So the question we have to ask is what might those appropriate circumstances actually be? 
So one of the matters that's been left open um, as a result of the case uh, of the Northwestern Health Board case was whether the refusal of treatment for expressly religious reasons would impact on their on the parent's ability to refuse. So Article 44.2.1 of the Constitution provides for freedom of conscience and religion. So this is a specific right. We have uh, a right to uh, practice our religion. And therefore, it was unclear to what extent the nature of the threat posed to the minor would tip the balance in favour of, of, of intervention to treat the child. So there's a famous case called In Re Baby A, where the court considered the case of a child of a Jehovah's Witness who required a blood transfusion. Uh, and the parents in that case objected on the basis of their on, on the basis of their religion. And the court was clear in such circumstances that there was an obligation on the court to intervene. Um, so Mr. Mr. Justice Hogan um, gave judgment in that case, and he acknowledged that the right of the state to intervene and to override the constitutional rights of the parents is expressly limited by the language of Article 42.5. He said that circumstances must be exceptional uh, and the, interventional, uh, the intervention must be proportionate to the circumstances. So it's only in those circumstances where it's exceptional and where the intervention is proportionate to the circumstances that someone can intervene, that the state can intervene. Um, so the court went on to say that in this case there had been a failure of duty on the parts of the on the part of the parents. So the court basically said was there's absolutely no doubt that the court can intervene in the case such as this because the child's life and general welfare were at stake in the in, in this case, and it was clear that the court had jurisdiction and should intervene in such a case. So an argument could be made. Uh, that where there's a threat to the life of the child uh, and, a gen and, a, and a threat to their general welfare that's posed by COVID-19, this might be considered exceptional circumstances, but it's unclear. So question marks then arose about what the impact of uh, the introduction of Article 42A of the Constitution had on, on um, issues relating to, to children. So this was a referendum that we had a few years ago and it, it's known as the Children's Rights Amendment. And it basically inserts provision in the constitution that um, focuses on, on, on the best interests of the child. And it sets out that this is a primary consideration in relation to uh, all matters dealing with the child. And this provision was recently considered by the Supreme Court um, kind of for the first time in substance in late January of this year in a case called the Mat in Re the Matter of JJ. And this was a really sad case um, where a young child had suffered a, a catastrophic brain injury in a road traffic accident. And the child's treating doctors wished to provide certain pain medications um, to the child, uh, pain relief medications, which risked um, the child suffering from respiratory arrest going forward. So it might stop uh, the child's breathing. And the, the, the hospital also wished to withhold certain invasive um, treatments should this happen, such as CPR, um, were his condition to deteriorate. And they wished to instead administer a palliative care regime um, as they were of the view that the child was not going to make any meaning, meaningful recovery from, from his, um, from his uh, injuries. Very sadly, the child's parents objected. Uh, they, they, they argued that he should receive all treatment to keep him alive and that he should be given an opportunity to make a recovery. They said it was too early to say that he'd never make a meaningful recovery. Um, so ultimately, the matter ended up in, in, in the High Court. Uh, and then uh, the High Court ordered that, um, uh, gave the orders that the hospital were seeking so that they wouldn't have to provide certain treatments. And the, the boy's family appealed to the Supreme Court. 
And the key question that the Supreme Court had to consider in this case, for, um, for the purposes of this discussion anyway, they had to consider a, a, a wide range of issues. But the key consideration for the purposes of mandatory vaccination or of relevance to mandatory vaccination is whether the refusal of the child's parents to consent to the treatment amounted to um, a failure of parental duty such that the state through the courts was obliged to uh, to step in and intervene. Uh, and basically what the court said was the correct test is whether whether the the, the parents had there's been a failure of parental duty. So that's what the court said was um, the key test for when it should intervene. Um, and what the court said was that the label of parental failure was one which not be lightly applied to any any parent, particularly to parents where it's acknowledged that they are otherwise caring, considerate and attentive to their children. Um, so it's not just, you know, the, the, the sad thing about a lot of the cases involving children is that often the parents believe that this is actually the best course of action um, for, for, for the child. So it's not that they're necessarily bad parents or anything like that. What the court said was there must be a failure and mo. Uh, and, and moreover, it, it must be one which prejudicially affects the safety or welfare of the child. And this requires something more than the determination that the child would be simply better off by having this decision made. It's not that it's a better decision. It's it, it, it has to be something more. And what the court also did was it expressed the view of, of Mr. Justice Hogan. Um, it, it echoed the view uh, of Mr. Justice Hogan in, in Re Baby AB that the use of the word failure is useful um, in that it, it expresses that there has to be a high hurdle before we can have state intervention, because it's very important, right? The rights of the family are very important. Um, but they also said it's actually quite an unhappy expression as well, because it suggests that there's inadequacy or worse, culpability on the part of parents who might be devoted and conscientious and actually who want what's in the best interests of their child. So what the court strongly emphasised throughout this judgment was that there's not necessarily a question of any moral failing or culpability in reaching a conclusion of failure of parental duty. Instead, the question is to be judged solely by the consequences of the decision uh, for the safety or welfare of the child. So the court went on to note that uh, making a, a, a decision to override a parental decision, particularly a decision of a, a conscientious, committed, loving parent, is not merely a matter uh, of, uh, it's, it's not merely for the court to look at the medical evidence. The court has to consider a number of different factors. So they have to consider the nature and the significance of the procedure involved, the extent to which the opinion of the treating doctors is unanimous. They have to look at, you know, independent expert um, expert evidence, what the medical um, position is kind of more globally. Uh, they'll also look at the depth and conviction with which it's held, that they're the reason for refusing. Um, and the court should at all times consider the possibility that the decision that, that um, the parents want to make is one that's what's known as permissible range of family decisions. So really, in order for a court to overrule a decision of a parent to refuse to consent um, for the child to be vaccinated, uh, what would have to be shown was that there was a failure of parental duty that risked the safety or welfare of the child. And the reality is it's not clear whether the refusal of a COVID-19 vaccine would amount to such a failure. I think it would really be necessary for um, for intervention to happen to show that there was a particular risk to that child. You'd have to show, you know, that there was a significant risk to children generally, perhaps. Um, you know, it might be uh, in the case of a child with a particular illness uh, or underlying condition that it might be those circumstances might give rise to it where it might not apply more generally. Um, but the reality is we don't actually know because we haven't we haven't tested it. 
Um, I think it certainly would make a really interesting case, but it's a very high threshold um, to reach. So I think my gut feeling at the moment is it probably wouldn't reach that threshold at the moment, but um, it's one to be seen. So like I said, there's a second category of, of, uh, of child. So generally a person is an adult at common law for the purposes of consent. So in Ireland, you're an adult for the purposes of consent, generally at the age of 18. Uh, however, Ireland has introduced legislation uh, and this provides a mechanism for 16 and 17 year olds to provide consent to surgical, medical or dental treatment. So that's found in, in Section 23 of the Non-Fatal Offences Against the Person Act from 1997. And this provides that a minor who has attained the age of 16 years, old, 16 years of age can consent to any surgical, medical or dental treatment themselves. So they don't need their parents' permission. Um, so it basically says that, 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 that there's no, no requirement for permission in those circumstances. So one of the key issues in relation to this section is that it only confers the right to specifically surgical, medical or dental treatment. So, for example, one obvious form of treatment that is excluded under this legislation is psychiatric treatment for persons, persons under the age of 18. So a 16 or 17 year old under this piece of legislation can't consent. So therefore the question kind of arises as to whether a minor can consent in relation to a medical intervention that wouldn't be classified as treatment in the strict sense. So it's not an intervention given for the purposes of treating a, a condition. So you must ask therefore whether, whether a medical intervention such as a vaccination whether something such as a blood test, whether a prescription of medication, so for example the contraceptive pill would that would that fall under um, the 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 auspices or or, or the, the definition of treatment and perhaps unfortunately treatment is not defined in the legislation and we haven't had a case where the the Irish courts have had to pronounce on this point so the Irish courts haven't had to consider whether something is is um, is treatment or not however I think generally three observations can be made firstly um, Insofar as the courts have, had, have been required to, to look at similar language, so similar language is used in the Mental Health Act 2001, the courts have given what's known as a broad construction uh, of what um, treatment means. So they've looked, they, they give it as broad an interpretation as possible. So secondly, whilst the, the, the law in Ireland is not clear on this point, so we don't have any cases to say um, what it is, um, the English courts, when they were construing um, the, uh, an, an identical English statutory provision, so they have the same same wording for their provision in Section 8 of the Family Law Reform Act 1969, they've interpreted the word treatment in its widest sense. Uh, and finally, the third observation I would make in relation to this is a wider approach has been recommended uh, as the appropriate interpretation by the Law Reform Commission when they looked at this area in 2011. And they, they, they did a report on children and the law um, on medical treatment. So I think I think the reality is that it, it seems quite likely that such interventions would fall within that category of treatment. Um, so I think it's likely that, say, if you were 16 or 17 and you wish to get the vaccine and your parents said no, I think it's likely that you would be able to get, you would be able to consent to the treatment in those circumstances. Um, in relation to children under the age of 16, I think the normal rules of consent so would apply. Um, so if they particularly wanted to, uh, and their parents didn't. Um, uh, I think it 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 wouldn't fall in. It, it would be difficult to see whether it would fall into the failure of duty on 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 the part. But in circumstances where someone can't consent, the court will generally take the approach that it's in the best interests of the child. So if, say, for example, a 15 or a 14 year old really wanted the vaccine, their parents weren't consenting. An application could be made in theory to the court 
And ultimately, the decision would probably be made in the best interest of the child in those circumstances. So just to sum up, um, what are, I suppose, the key arguments from a legal and a constitutional perspective, again, that can be made in favour of mandatory vaccinations, such as one that could possibly be introduced for COVID-19? What would be the key arguments, do you feel, which can be made against mandatory vaccinations? I think that's, I think one of the key things to remember and to say at the outset is that it's not, that I'm not really talking about whether a mandatory vaccination scheme should be brought in or it shouldn't be brought in. And it's not really about the merits of such a scheme. That's really a, a matter for the government to, to, to make a policy decision on. What, what I'm really talking about is whether it could be constitutionally permissible. And I think the main arguments that will be made in favour of a mandatory vaccination scheme is that we're currently living in unprecedented times in a public health emergency. And ultimately, this constitutes exceptional circumstances. The reality is that we are living through the worst public health crisis in the history of the state. Um, and we faced all sorts of restrictions on our rights uh, at the moment in the name of protecting health and welfare. So you would expect that the main arguments would be that such a scheme is necessary uh, uh, to protect public health, uh, to protect public life. Uh, and also it's necessary to ensure that we end the constant cycle of lockdowns that we're currently seeing. On the other side of things, I think the main arguments that you'd see against mandatory vaccinations would really boil down to the idea that it's simply a disproportionate infringement of the personal rights of the individual to introduce such a scheme. So the reality of the reality is that such a scheme will be completely unpre- unprecedented in Irish law. And um, you know we've never seen a scheme like this before, where the the entire population has to um, has to be vaccinated. We've never seen restrictions on this level before. Um, I think another argument that is likely to be made is that simply such a scheme would not only be unnecessary but it might also be counterproductive to the ultimate aim of getting everybody vaccinated. So I've seen that there have been arguments made that, you know, things like awareness campaigns, uh, public education on the merits of the vaccination and things like that are actually a much better way of achieving public buy-in and compliance rather than introducing mandatory systems which carry penal elements. So, you know, there's people who argue it's it's much better to actually convince people to do it rather than say, um, you'll be penalised for not doing it. Um, I've seen people raise questions about whether mandatory vaccination schemes actually increase the numbers to a sufficient level for the vaccine to actually have an impact. So, um, and I think there's a lot of people who would argue along the lines of the carrot is better than the stick and simply making it mandatory is unnecessary. And instead that you should try incentivize people to take it. Um, and I think the reality is um, we would prefer everyone to, 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 to you know, voluntarily take it. Uh, it's much better, uh, just generally, um, uh, for 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 society. I would say. I think one of the things that's really interesting is Ireland has strong protections under the constitution and under the common law that protects the right to bodily integrity, it protects our right to autonomy. All these things are very strongly protected. As we've discussed, one of the exceptions that has been noted to this, however, is um, in the treatment of of contagious diseases. So I think the reality is it's likely that the Irish courts will be very wary of a general introduction of mandatory vaccinations in Ireland, because any such programme would be a significant restriction of the personal rights of the people in Ireland. However, the situation may be somewhat different when it comes to a vaccine for COVID-19. And, you know, a number of of arguments could be put forward that such an, uh, an approach could be constitutionally permissible. So it's important to remember that constitutional rights are not absolute. 
uh, Article 40.3 of the Constitution, which gives right to the personal rights guarantees uh, under the Constitution, it it places express limitations on these personal rights. Um, So it says that they are are to be vindicated as far as practicable and they are to be protected from unjust attack. The Constitution also sets out to promote the common good in its preamble. So this is a concept that also acts as an express limitation on some rights. So some rights are limited because it's in the common good. Um, And every individual holds personal rights and some rights will take precedent over others. So, for example, um, in the case um, in Fleming versus Ireland, which was a decision um, where Marie Fleming challenged um, the the laws on assisted, the prohibition on assisted suicide, and it's known as the right to die case. The Supreme Court held that the right to life actually outweighed an individual, uh, an individual's right to autonomy in those circumstances. So on the basis of the judicial commentary we've seen to date, um, not on this topic, but just more generally, you'd, you'd anticipate that the main arguments we made that we're, you know, we're living in unprecedented times, it's a public health emergency, and these are, um, are, are exceptional circumstances. However, such considerations would have to be finally balanced against our individual rights. And the court would need to determine um, whether the interference that's going on with the individual's personal rights, whether that interference was proportionate uh, to the aim of actually protecting the public's health. So I think the reality is the introduction of any mandatory vaccination scheme would certainly prove to be controversial from a personal personal rights um, perspective. And really what the government would need to show was that such a scheme was proportionate uh, and necessary. So um, I'll I'll, I'll just finish up on this point. Um, uh, So when you ask, like, could COVID-19 and the threat it poses be considered exceptional circumstances? And would it be enough to overwrite the right to refuse vaccines? Unfortunately, I'm going to have to give you the really annoying lawyer's answer of it depends. Uh, I think at the level of theory, at least, it's probable that a a government could introduce a scheme for mandatory vaccination that would survive a challenge to the constitutionality of it. But really, it's all about the detail of such a scheme. Um, And again, I I, I just I think it's always important to reiterate it's not about whether we should or shouldn't. It's just whether we can or can't um, that I'm discussing. But any scheme that was introduced would have to be designed according to the principles of proportionality as in limiting people's rights in the least restrictive way possible, but also it has to be necessary. So, you know, you have to show necessity and proportionality. So in considering a law that restricts rights, the courts apply what's known as the proportionality test. So first, the courts will will look at, does the law restrict rights, pursue an an important objective in the public good? I think the reality is, uh, a, a vaccination scheme, mandatory vaccination scheme, is would be done, in, you know, in pursuit of, of of the of the public good. So it probably would satisfy that that element of the test. The courts will then go on to consider if the law only violates the right as little as it needs to in order to achieve the objective. So it can't go further than it needs to. It can't be just because something might be easier to do it um, a certain way. It can only go as far as it actually needs to be, and it should be limited. At that. It, it, it can't just be because something's a bit easier to do it that way. The court then goes on to consider the question of whether something was arbitrary or irrational. So if it if it's an arbitrary decision or it's an irrational decision, the court won't uphel, up, uphold the scheme. And then the final thing that the courts will look at um, is if the good done by the law can be said to justify the harms done to the rights. So, you know, does, does the, the good outweigh um, the harm done?
So if the government were to introduce such a scheme, it obviously would be a serious restriction on our individual rights as citizens. However, on the other hand, I think you could make the argument that it's done for a good objective. It's done in the interest of the common good. It's done, it's done to defend the life and health of other people in the state. So I think in order for such a measure to be deemed necessary, the government would need to take steps first to encourage voluntary vaccination. So I don't think tomorrow, I don't think they could just introduce a mandatory vaccination scheme. However, if the government was able to show that there was, for example, an extremely low uptake in, in vaccinations, uh, if they were able to show that it was necessary to protect health and life, if they were able to show that, look, we need to get to this level, it's not possible for us to get to this level unless we introduce the, um, the, the mandatory vaccination scheme, things like that. You know, the answer is it may be proportionate and necessary. And really, it really boils down to the circumstances of the scheme. I think one of the important factors to take into account is that courts in Ireland have given real weight to the fact that the Oireachtas think a particular um, measure was necessary. And really, they, they kind of only find it unconstitutional if it's clearly shown to cross a line into being disproportionate. So, for example, um, examples of previous decisions that, that, that have been done would be the fluoridation of the water case um, that we discussed earlier in Attorney General and Ryan, or the prohibition on assisted suicide was upheld um, in, in Fleming and Ireland. So the court said, you know, these weren't d disproportionate measures to take. Um, I think it's fair to say that there would be a credible constitutional case against the introduction of such a scheme because quite clearly it's a serious restriction on our rights. And the reality is that the devil is in the detail uh, of how it's executed. You know, the, the government, if they wanted to introduce this, this scheme and say it was challenged, they'd need to show the likely effectiveness um, of, of the scheme. So if they could show that it was necessary, if they could show it was proportionate, there is a significant chance, I, I believe, that it would be upheld, that the courts would uphold such a scheme. And basically what the court needs to do is it needs to determine that any interference with an individual's personal rights need to be proportionate and necessary to the aim of protecting the public's health. And that's really how the court would go about it. Um, obviously, it's very difficult to predict which way it would go. Um, and I think it would be a really interesting case um, where it where, where taken. Colin, that was really all very informative. Thank you so much. Um, it was just a fantastic overview of the legal and constitutional implications where um, medical treatment and particularly vaccines are concerned. Uh, no doubt these issues will intensify um, over the coming months and it'll be interesting to see how the Iraqis and indeed the courts will respond. So thank you very much for speaking with me today.